0: Well, thank you for everybody uh, for having us here. Thank you to Kirby and to Megan and to everybody from the Montana Historical Society uh, for letting me back here and especially to Border uh, Homeland Security for letting me back here as well today. (laughs) Because after all, uh, some darn fool and about to settle some war that had nothing to do with either of us on either side of the line decided to draw a line around 1812 and we're stuck with it. And uh, my background uh, comes from not too far off that line. I was born in right where I coot sweet on the Canadian side, unfortunately. So, I didn't get that uh, magical dual citizenship, but uh, my dad's uh, experience parallels somewhat Johnny Healy. Johnny Healy, of course, was the instigator and trader of the Whoop-Up Trail. Well, the modern equivalent of the Whoop-Up Trail was uh, what they now call Highway Number Four and Interstate 15, extending out of Montana into Alberta. And my father ran a service station at Coots for several years uh, through the 1950s, when many Americans were coming across and getting their first uh, peek at wanting to go down the Alaska Highway. Well, their first glimpse of Canada was my dad's gas station, and there was interesting stories he always had because everybody came with these stereotypes about what Canada was. And of course, you know, the cars were just full of blankets and and all sorts of coats and everything else. And everybody would open the doors and the trunks and these big old vehicles, and out would come the big jerry cans and the gas cans. And dad would gladly fill them. And after they'd packed up and he'd uh, they'd handed him his money and they'd ask, do you know where the next filling station is, sir? And he says, yeah, about five miles down the road in Milk River. <laughs> so, I'd like to think that, jo- that uh, my dad really would have appreciated Johnny Healy, and one of the things I start with was um, his, uh, my, my dad's old quote was, you can't accumulate if you don't speculate. And Johnny Healy was an amazing speculator, and sometimes he accumulated, and sometimes the accumulations were for naught, but he was, had a heck, he was quite the adventurer. Uh, He had uh, relationships, uh, of course, in Montana. I was just trying to think in my head here as I was driving down. I think he probably spent a good two decades in Montana, uh, living in Montana as trader and amongst other uh, things as well. In those same years, he was also doing business on my side of the line in uh, what is now Alberta. Uh, Later on, spent many, many years in Alaska and in the Yukon Territory, and previous to coming to Montana, uh, spent a lot of time in the Northwest and what we now know of as Oregon, Washington, and Idaho looking for gold and in Utah. And I'll try to touch on all of these highlights. There is just no way I can tell you every story about Johnny Healy that there is. There's no way the book could. You can believe what I had to leave out. but uh, I think it has been a good narrative and um, I've had a lot of good public um, reviews and and uh, accolades on the book but I think the the real story of it is Johnny himself in fact many years when I go when I started doing this I almost thought of that I should be putting him down as a as a co-creator as a co author Uh, but his, his life was just awesome. I love biography because I love the sweep of history that it takes and I don't think anybody swept history more than Johnny. Uh, he was born in Ireland in 1840. Amidst, uh, He's sort of the, the Forrest Gump of, uh, of the Old West as you'll come to see. You know, the, the great events and the sweep of history always comes and touches him somewhere. When he's seven years old, uh, his family, who are traditionally millers, the Healeys were uh, traditionally millers in the county of Cork in southern Ireland, and uh, they weren't as affected by the potato famine as much as other members of the family who were, you know, of the peasant or the farmer class, because they had the, these mills, and they were fortunate that when the, uh, the famine started to break out, that the British government was giving a subsidy to the Irish, to keep these mills going so to keep people fed and unfortunately governments change and eventually the subsidy was pulled and he- the Healy family was just left there standing there with a with a mill producing grain that nobody could afford to buy or or flour that nobody could afford to buy so what do you do immigration and we all know the stories we've all read these uh these great and and tragic stories about uh, the Irish going across the world to America and to Canada and to Australia and other places. And uh, the Healy family lands in New York City around about 1852 and there the, uh, unfortunately the, the story gets a little murky because one thing you find about Johnny is Johnny's happiest when he's talking about adventure, when he's talking about good things that happen to him when he's talking about himself well let's see and because he's he's a promoter that's what he does and he's happiest when uh when he frankly when he's in the west and he talks very very little about his years as uh in new york city i don't know whether he was one of the uh the kids on the street you know in the in those awful gangs that you you read about in the or, in Gangs of New York or watched in the Scorsese movie. I like to think that he was because I really believe, you know, that sort of a tough atmosphere, you know, would, would uh, prepare an adolescent for a frontier life. At any rate, uh, there's even a rumor that he was, he joined the William Walker Brigade that tried to take over first Sonora, Mexico and, and next uh, uh, Nicaragua. Whether that was, became something, I could never put that in one way or the other. I did manage to put in a paragraph that, okay, there's an era, there's a point in here where he could have been there, I'm not certain. If he did, he got out of it very, very safely and he didn't end up uh, strung up by the Hondurans like the rest of the Walker Brigade down there. He ended up in, in Buffalo, New York in a recruitment office where he laid his, uh, his uh, signature down to the, and join, to the paper and joined the second United States Dragoons. And this was on the cusp of the Utah War when uh, President Buchanan, and I don't wanna get into too much politics here in an election year as a foreigner, but when President Buchanan, um, you know, with the civil war raging around him, decided to placate his troubles by declaring war on Utah and sent uh, Albert Sidney Johnston and seven brigades of, uh, of cavalry out to uh, through Leavenworth, Kansas, and then marched on through uh, Fort Bridger, Wyoming, and down into Utah. Now, of course, we all know from our history that that was kind of a comedy of errors. It didn't uh, come to much of a war, it, it not much more than a bit of a dress rehearsal for the Civil War, really for, for the Dragoon members as well. But what did come out of it was, as they're camped at Fort Bridger, well, we all know who that fort's named after, Jim Bridger. This is the 1850s and this long-in-the-tooth, gray-haired old man comes out and he's telling stories around the campfire. And you can just imagine Johnny, this little Irish guy who just wanted to go west, you know. And they're all sitting around the campfire and this guy's just telling one windy after the other. You know, talking about bears that talk to him and how dying and coming back to life and things like that. And talking about uh, scouting on the Oregon Trail with the Indians and everything else. And Johnny just, just he, he's sitting too close to the fire listening to this. He can't stand it anymore. Well, so what happens um, as the Utah War kind of fizzles? Johnny is sent, actually, as it happens, out onto the Oregon Trail into the, through the Barren Wasatch Mountains. And with, uh, as a buck private, he's uh, providing security to the, the migrants going out to the Willamette Valley. And he's going out through the Shoshone country and the Nez Pierce, and he's learning an awful lot as he goes. Well, along uh, one day, a rider comes into camp at the Portnuff Bridge in Southern Idaho with the U.S. mail. And lo and behold, there's a dispatch from uh, the war department and it's got the name Healy on it and it says discharge this man he lied about his age and surely enough he did lie about his age to get into the U.S. cavalry. Uh, He told everybody he was over 21 in those days you had to be over 21 if you were 18 or or between 18 and 21 you had to get parents permission and he apparently did not have that parental permission and the, the parent the family caught up to Somehow, the family had, seemed to have enough influence to burn up uh, lines to the, the, the Secretary of War, and uh, Johnny was gone. Uh, and I don't think Johnny cared that much about that because in the writings that I have read over Time Memorial, and it didn't matter whether he was talking about the U.S. Army or later the U.S. Navy in Alaska, or even our nor- own Northwest Mounted Police, he didn't care much for uniformed officials. And I think this probably had a lot to do with his time in the Army. He just didn't care for commanders. And he wanted to be his own man. And uh, I always looked and think of uh, him at 21 there in the middle of the mountains. And I think of that John Denver song, born at the age of 21, born in his 21st year. And they say he was born again. And, you know, strangely enough, that's when Johnny's memoirs start. That's when he starts talking, Is in the middle of Idaho when he throws down that blue coat and he picks up the buckskin jacket and he's out onto the Oregon Trail. Uh, he very successfully gets one wagon train through to, uh, to Oregon City, to the Willamette Valley. And I believe that's in the year 1850, no 1861, sorry and it's a very fortunate that he had thrown off that red blue coat because we all know what happened later on in 1861. The second dragoons were back east and Albert Sidney Johnston as we probably know he traded his blue coat for a gray coat and he bled out at Shiloh. So Johnny was having nothing to do with this civil war business and he likes the mountains and he likes this life he likes learning how to deal with the He likes learning how to deal with Inez Nez and he comes with all of this colonial racial background about First Nations people and Indians in general. I don't wanna present him off as that, you know, he, he, he's some guy here that all suddenly understood everyone. He was like everyone else. He had his biases and his prejudices. But I think he was the type of person that could learn how to negotiate and how to get out of situations. And he would learn how to get out of these situations just by being bold, by being very bold moves. And he didn't mind letting people know that he was prepared to die, and he would prepared to take a few with you. So, do you want to come with me? Because I'm ready to go. And that would happen on several occasions in his life. Um, unfortunately, Johnny is susceptible also to something else that we're all susceptible, and that's uh, greed. He's in a bar in Oregon City one day and somebody starts talking about gold in northern Idaho. And of course he's had a little too, too much to, to drink on this one and he sucks this gold fever right up. He, he's afflicted. He catches the first boats that are headed back up to Columbia and he heads up into the Salmon River country. Uh, he ends up being one of the finders of uh, Florence, Idaho, and the Orofino claims and that sort of thing, so he's all in amongst of that. And he pulls $20,000 out of Florence, Idaho. And you think, $20,000 in 1862, pretty good haul there for a 22-year-old young buck out of Ireland. Well, you think that would be good enough, but no, it's not. Johnny starts to hear it listening to these folk tales again and the, the mountain man or somebody is telling him stories about a bigger load up in the, in the Bitter Roots, and uh, load was about all it was, uh, <laughs> a different kind of load. So, he follows an expedition up the Salmon River and he almost starves to death. So, the expedition is so arduous, most of, the, most of the rest of the expedition turns back. And by the time he crawls over, and he finds the old Mormon fort at Fort Lemhi in the Bitterroots. He's just pretty much a walking skeleton, and he, he, he walks into Lemhi, and it's, uh, it's abandoned, completely abandoned. There's, he can't even find a, uh, a flower keg in that place. So he just basically lays on the floor and thinks he's going to die when along comes a wagon train and opens up the, uh, the back of it. And uh, the strange thing, the reason I I take so long on this is because between the Irish famine and this incident, famine will always become a factor in Johnny Healy's life. And every time it comes up, he tends to lose it a little bit. He remembered as a boy, seeing all of these horrid sights, walking skeletons around Ireland and bodies piling up. And he probably also remembered the British redcoats in Ireland. And he probably was no more charitable to the Canadian redcoats. Um, so, so, like I said, this will be, but it also uh, straightens him out a little bit and one of the phrases I think I used and I was real proud of myself for coming up with this, never again will the metal rule the man. Now, he'll always be interested in mining and he'll always be interested in prospecting but he's not going to ever going to be one of these guys in gumboots with a pan and a, and a mule yelling out Eureka. He's going to do it scientifically, he's going to do his job. He's going to do his research, and that's essentially the way he always does. He was quite the reader. I think he must have had a classical education of some kind, either in Ireland or in New York City, because he had one uh, brother that ended up becoming a school teacher. His wife, uh, Mary Frances Healy, was a school teacher, and one brother that was a Roman Catholic priest. So I believe the family had some kind of means when they were in New York City, and Johnny loved to read and loved to write. He always talked, and his, his daughters always talked about him. He was always reading late, late into the night. You know, he'd have two things going. He'd have the, the bottle of sour mash and a book right in front of him. <laughs> and, he, and always with a gun beside the bed. Now, when Johnny gets into the uh, uh, Bannock and all of that, into that area, Uh, There's all kinds of stories, some don't pan out, (laughs) sorry, that wasn't a pun. Um, Some of the stories that uh, didn't pan out, somebody said that he was one of the originators of the Montana Post, and if that was true, I can't figure out how. I think that was just, somebody was wishful thinking on that one. Um, And as far as the vigilantes is concerned, um, I only really found one incident where he could be connected, to the vigilante um, incidents, and that was a case of a a man by the name of Henry Brent who was apparently caught with a number of horse thieves. Henry Brent was a young boy, Uh, they hung the rest, and Henry Brent was given a chance and he was sent out and he was, (laughs) as it happens, Healy later ran into him um, a few days later up up the trail when he'd been attacked by, by Indians. And apparently he just uh, had laid down and, and, uh, and let his life expire. Now, the biggest reason that I know he wasn't involved in, the, in the, any of the Virginia City goings on around 1863 was because he was on our side of the line at that point in time. He was doing research. He was one of the first people to come from Montana and ride all the way to Edmonton. Uh, which at that point in time from here was a fairly good distance. I have no idea how long it took him. He must have rode up the backbones of the mountains, and I don't think he went across the prairie when he went up. But anyway, any rate, he got into Fort Edmonton, Rocky Mountain House, and those were Hudson's Bay Company forts. And um, Healy learns all about the Hudson's Bay Company and how they act. And they're very much, you know, the Canadian version of how the American fur company acts as well. They are the same basic business model. Only, um, a lot of Americans might not realize this, in fact, most Canadians I know don't realize this, that the Hudson's Bay Company once owned all of Western and Northern Canada. And I mean, owned it. I mean, you talk about the Koch brothers today, I know, these guys had title from the king. And the only thing they wanted to do with it was to trade furs. That's all they wanted to do. And then send Hudson's Bay and then uh, and give out to their shareholders in England. And uh, the Hudson's Bay Company at that point in time were very jealous of their monopoly. They didn't want anything coming in there that was going to upset the, the Cree or the beaver trade, or the transportation on the Saskatchewan rivers, or anything that was upset. They didn't want to see farmers, they didn't want to see cowboys, they didn't really want to see priests other than they were probably uh, made to by the British government. And they certainly did not want to see American gold prospectors on the North Saskatchewan River. So, uh, Johnny finances an expedition. Uh, and sends with his 20,000 that he cashed out at uh, Idaho, and he sends them north from Fort Benton. Only Johnny doesn't actually go on this trip. He's on the first trip, but on the second trip, he goes back north to, or back to New York City to try to gain finances, and as it turns out, get married and have a baby with his wife, of course. and the, the father-in-law was one of the financiers of the expedition, so being there when the baby was born was a bit of a, uh, a business decision. Now, while he's away, his men in the Hudson's Bay uh, country were treated horribly by the Bay people. Um, they walked in there one day, wanted to throw their, their gold on the counter, and goes, "Yes, we'd like to buy some uh, some you know some victuals. We'd like to buy some food and some supplies and." Trader just says, sorry, your, your money is no good here. He goes, well, we have more of it. He goes, no, you don't understand. Your money is no good here. You are not wanted here. We don't want you people in this country. And at one point, the Bay Company even put these men under arrest. And in order to, uh, to feed themselves, they had to chop cordwood. And chopping cordwood in Edmonton in the wintertime is a, a different kind of a thing. It's, it's not only cold, but it's windy. It's, you get the same winds that you get here. And at any rate, uh, while they're doing all this wood chopping, they're not mining any gold. And anybody that I- they are doing it, all they're finding is flower gold in the North Saskatchewan. And it's of very little value. So these Montanans come back to Fort Benton and they find Johnny just pacing the river. What's going on here? Why, re- why, aren't, you guys, like, why aren't you guys loaded down with gold here? What's happening? Hudson Bay Company kicked us out. And from that day, Johnny just declared war On the Hudson's Bay Company you know this is one of the world's oldest corporations you know chartered by the king of England and he's declaring war on it that's the kind of guy it's kind of you kind of get the little visions of Yosemite Sam you know and (laughs) with this guy and that's very much his attitude now it took some years before he could finagle this uh, this war against the HBC so he he dabbled a little bit in gold, but eventually he made his stake at Sun River, about 1862-3-4. Uh, those years are a bit of a fog to me, but he settled down with his family at Sun River. In fact, the house that he built is still there, and the Sun River Valley Historical Society is working hard to, to try to keep that there. Uh, the lady who owned it, uh, Mrs. Emma Tolman, just passed away last year, and she was a bit of a collector, if I could say. Maybe some of you know her and have heard the stories. Hoarder's is another word, but, <laughs> but she was a very valuable collector. So they are very carefully logging everything as it comes out of that, that house. But every time I visit that farm, I take a look at those logs and I'm like, man, this is the same architecture as Fort Whoop-Up. You know, so it's, it's very interesting. But at any rate, um, Johnny is also managing the stock farm for the U.S. government at that point in time and the Blackfeet Agency. And in those years, this is the years when the Blackfeet Wars start. And I would imagine as historically minded people, you know a bit about this, uh, these Blackfeet Wars between 1865 and around about 1870, it's not really an out-and-out war. It's just a lot of uh, bush brush fire hit and runs and revenge and tit-for-tat killings and a lot of people walking around playing soldier until it finally ends up in a huge tragedy at the Marias in 1870. Um, But Johnny is kind of at the heart of these things and sometimes he's escalating it because he's a very political animal. And uh, I hate to say this word again election year but he's a very large part of the Democratic Party. (laughs) Okay, all right, I'm still good. (laughs) Well, Democrats and Republicans were a different animal in those years. I probably, I don't, I'm not going there. And uh, in fact, he was elected to the first territorial legislature at Bannock. And for some reason, and I have never ascertained this why he didn't, he never served. He just said, I refuse. And maybe he was just too busy in business. Maybe he just had other things to do. And he was only 24 years old at the time. So maybe he just felt like, hey, I I don't need one more job. And maybe it wasn't paying. Uh, so, in his years on the, uh, on the stock farm, there's, there's quite a bit of violence that uh, goes on, and over time, he also meets a prospector that you may have heard Paul Wiley talk about uh, by the name of Alfred Hamilton, and they become fast friends, and they will be friends basically for the rest of their, rest of their lives, and Alf will never really be too far away from Johnny and uh, that's an important uh, fact because sometimes Johnny dropped his friends really quickly. Uh, about 1869, uh, Healy and Hamilton are in partnership at this Sun River post when a group of Bloods um, come across the line to trade and he's been trying to foster this trade for several years, trying to get the Blood and the Pecani and Sixacoff uh, from the the Uh, Canadian side or the the British North American side as it would have been known in those days to come across and instead of going to Fort Benton or even worse going north to Fort Edmonton to come see him at Sun River and trade with him as an independent. Well one small camp came in in uh, February of 1869 and in the night in their first night of camping they were attacked. Uh, by an unknown band that proved to be the Flathead, which was a complete surprise to everyone, and they drove away around 300 horses, which was a combination of the blood horses, the, the bloods uh, herd, uh, his own horses, and some and some that were branded U.S. on them. So it was a, it was a fairly substantial raid. Now, uh, I suppose he could probably could have. He, he tried to get the army interested in Fort Shaw. They weren't really interested in getting out of bed and getting to uh, uh, talking about cross-agency uh, politics too much, as it was in those days. So he got up a couple of guys and he says, "Let's ride over the Flathead Reservation." Now, as you folks know, and I've made the drive today, that's not exactly uh, over the hill that's a bit of a ride he got in there and here is his three men walking in and saying hey those are stolen horses we want them back you know from a sovereign nation well it was it was a bit of an interesting and I go into some details it was quite the rodeo that happened but by the end of the the uh, the day Johnny managed to recover all but about six horses There was about three that were lost, and I think there were several that they gave back just kind of as a show of good faith to the flathead, and then he drove them all back to Sun River, and he gave them back to the Bloods. Have you ever heard of such a thing? This man, at his own expense and risk to his life, you know, went and got this horse herd back. He could have kept them and said, those are my horses. Yes. As far as I know, he came here and then went that way because he was tracking. Now, I don't know whether he got the Great Falls and then went over there. I'm not certain. He may have gone as far as here. At one point, he does talk about going into Helena, but I may have my dates confused in my head right now. Right yes, he did. So, yeah, it was a, this was a chore. So what you get out of here is basically two words and brownie point. You know, he's just curried the favor of the Blood Nation, and this is a very significant thing to do because, as I've said, the Bloods, along with the other Blackfoot uh, uh, members of the Blackfoot Confederacy, they're used to going to Edmonton or following the herds when they're to, they happen to be in the United States or as far as Fort Union. So he gets it into his head and goes, well, what if I'm Walmart and I just open up right on their own territory in their back door? Nobody has ever done this. Southern Alberta, like after the, the Lewis and Clark um, the two medicine fight, that's pro-no-go country. Even the Hudson's Bay doesn't get too close to that. The closest they ever got to that was a post at Calgary and one near uh, north of Medicine Hat. And even they would abandon their posts from time to time if the Blackfoot got a little stringy. So Johnny just says... I don't know why I'm talking into this microphone and I've got this microphone. But, (laughs) anyway, Johnny says, you know, I says, I think I can curry some favor. I think I've made a brownie point here. And Paul Wiley has has talked about at some length about that year in 1869, what was going on. And Johnny's doing some interesting things there. There's some rumors of some stolen property from Fort Shaw that is being held on his property at Sun River, Uh, his brother Joe goes and does some jail time for a little bit. Uh, And I've never quite figured out what that was all about, exactly what the stolen property was. I don't think it was guns, I think we'd have known about that. But uh, at any rate, Johnny skates on that and he and Alf decide to, you know, let's put an expedition together and let's go up into that country. And it's a very interesting time to be doing this because in late 1869 what is happening is the Hudson's Bay Company decided to get out of the, co- the country governing business and stay in its, in, its in, in the fur business. And so they're surrendering their land and they have basically sold it all to the very tiny nation of Canada because b- between 1867 and 70, all Canada was was a little chunk of Ontario and a little chunk of Quebec and and the Maritimes that's all Canada was and buying this land made it the second biggest country in the world and suddenly like Johnny takes a look and goes you know what they've got no police up there they've got no army they've got no postal clerks they don't even have a customs agent there's nothing up there there's no white presence at all so through this diligent research he starts the expedition that goes and begins what we are now known as, I call it Fort Whoop-Up. Everybody calls it Fort Whoop-Up, Whoop-Up, you call it whatever, just don't call it late for dinner. Uh, And there there are reasons where that name comes from, we can talk about that in the question session perhaps. As he is going on this expedition in Christmas of 1869, and it seems to be a Chinooki kind of a season, because you don't take off in a very cold weather with the kind of teams and wagons like he's got. So it must be an open year. As he's crossing the Alkali Flats near where Shelby is, getting close to the border, he meets a small band of blood that are starving to death. And this couldn't have been a a more fortuitous meeting for Johnny or for the chief of this band because his name was Bullsback Fat. And any of you that know anything about, um, you know, the aboriginal history of the fur trade in Montana might know that name. It's a hereditary name. There's a bull's back fat that was painted by Catlin at Fort Union, and I think it probably stands as one of the first images ever done of, the blo- of anyone of the blood nation. So this is almost like uh, Kainai royalty. And Johnny just says, no problem. He opens up the sheet and he feeds these guys. Here's the famine thing again. He didn't go buy them. He didn't just say, okay, you know, I'm going by this hitchhiker. He fed them. And not only that, ever since he had left Sun River, he had a bit of a security detail with him because the Bloods had actually sent a warrior society to accompany his wagon train into their territory. They wanted him in Canada. And this is the one thing that I say in my book that cracks the mythology that every Canadian historian had ever talked about Fort Whoop-Up. Yes, they were whiskey traders. Yes, they were incursions onto foreign soil. Having said that, there's two things to remember. Number one is a vacuum of power. The Manitoba Rebellion leads to a six-month vacuum where nobody really owns that territory. Not the Hudson's Bay, not the Canadian government, nobody. And there's certainly no sheriffs, no Mounties, no anything up there to tell anybody that they can't be there. And certainly no liquor laws. Now, there is a permit that I'm sure you've heard Paul Wiley talk about where Alfred Sully gave Helian Hamilton the right to take no more than 300 gallons of medicinal liquor <laughs> across the Blackfoot Reservation. Boy, those guys must have been worried about a cold, I'll tell you. <laughs> And yes, liquor was a part of it, we can't deny that. As much as I get to be a bit of an apologist for the, uh, what I call the three traders of Benton, um, I can't deny that liquor was a huge part of it. Having said that, it's been overstated, I believe, mostly by some of the Canadian mythmakers on our side. But uh, at any rate, they go into, uh, Bull's Back Fat leads them into a, a neck of land that is called Many Ghosts. And there is a Blackfoot word for it, but I can never remember it, so I'm not going to even try. And it's essentially also known today as the Whoop-Up Flats in that area. And it's the uh, where the St. Mary's River uh, is meeting the Old Man River coming from the West, the St. Mary's as it comes out of Montana. And it is definitely very much in Canadian territory and it's within spitting distance of the, s- the city limits of Lethbridge, Alberta today. So this is the first, commercial enterprise outside of the Hudson's Bay and is also the first permanent settlement anywhere west of Winnipeg or anywhere south of the North Saskatchewan River, south of Edmonton. And uh, so whoop up uh, up, and they're there. Now while they are building the original posts, because there was two posts on the site, the original post was just kind of a quick throw-me-up that they called Fort Hamilton while they were are there and they must get in there around about uh the first part of january of 1870 and the weather turns and it turns bitterly cold now if you want to know how bitterly cold was all you have to do is read paul wiley or um andrew graybill's books on baker's expedition because it's the same territory and it's baker's the same territory in the same time of the year that uh, when Baker's expedition is going up to uh, do its bad deeds at the Marias. Now Johnny and uh, Alf's role in the Marias massacre, I don't believe they even knew it it had happened. I don't think that they knew it, it had happened at the time. However, a after effect of that that I relate about in the book, and I haven't gone into either Greybills or, or Wiley's book far enough to know if, if they talk about this at all. Uh, so they, they read it in mine, we might have some conversations. But the after effect is the Pekani that have left because of the Marias massacre that do escape, or the Mountain Chief Band, and they go across to the other side of the 49th parallel. As Johnny says, they keep shady. That means that they were lying low. And as the, this Fort Hamilton is being built and as the Bloods are camping around them and basically showing them what to do, like, hey, here's the land, build your Walmart. The Bacani show up and they're going, what are you guys doing here? And you know, let's face it, you know, they're out for revenge. They're ready, they're not happy and rightfully so. And a man named Cuthan walks in and Johnny, he says, you be out of here, you know, basically out of here at sundown. He goes, you're, you're in Nitsitapi territory now. You're not in the land of the Long Knives. And the next thing you know, Johnny is, uh, everybody's retreating into what's there, the buildings, and they're opening crates, and they're pulling out all the trade rifles, everything else, and they're, they're prepared to go down Swinging. And just out of a Hollywood movie, who comes riding in but bullsback fat? And he takes off his wor- his shirt and he walks up to cut hand and he goes, well, from one Blackfoot chief to another, if you go to, to kill that man, you're going to you're gonna have to come through me. And this is just an incredible scene to me. You know, this is like one, you know, the Bloods and the Crips you know, hol- holding up against the L.A. Police Department or something like that, and sticking up for the L.A. Police Department—you know, bad example—but you know, there's, there, uh, Bullsback Fat wants this trade, and the Bloods want this trade in their territory so badly that they're willing to go to war with another one of the First Nations. So that's that's one of the things that just is is so interesting to me. Um. And as it turns out, Bulls back fat goes, if you want to trade, trade. If you want to fight, let's get it on. They trade. And in that first season, between January and about May, June-ish of 1870, Healy and Hamilton come home, sell their goods at Fort Benton, and they when they Go to uh, divide it up. They've got $50,000 between them, 50000 US dollars. Well, what do we do with this, guys? Well, let's first, let's yell Eureka, because some darn fool tells the Helena Daily Herald that they've made $50,000, and next thing you know, everybody with a pack mule and a horse and a jug of whiskey is headed north. And uh, over the next four years, Uh, probably some 40 posts were built between the uh, Rocky Mountains and the Cypress Hills of Saskatchewan and a few on the Montana side as well, but on the Montana side they were subjective to the U.S. Army or the U.S. Marshal Service. On the Canadian side, hey, it's it's playtime. There's no law. There's nothing. Now, back in Ottawa, they're writing laws, but big deal. Like I said, they haven't even sent out a postal clerk. They're sending priests and ministers out there to find out what's going on. You know, it's so remote from any form of government that it is. And, of course, the Hudson's Bay Company is quite willing to very much play up what is happening because, uh, you know, we can't do anything about this. We don't have a monopoly, but we really don't want them here. (laughs) So there's, there's quite a few events that go on over those years. From Fort Hamilton is built a fort that is probably on the scale of of Fort Union and it's a 300 by 300 post that will take on the name of Fort Wupup. Does anyone want to hear where that name comes from? Okay, all right, well I have 12 variations. No, no, I will only give you one and it's my favorite and I think it's the most likely somewhere in this first six months they ran out of liquor (laughs) and uh, they sent a uh, a German American because there was quite a few German Americans involved in that liquor trade and quite a few of the Amish from Pennsylvania and his name was uh, Joseph Y and I don't even know if I'm saying that right but Y went back to Fort Benton and then he went into the TC Power Company because Power is uh, Healy's main backer, his banker and his his, uh, supplier of goods. And I just happened to look out from my hotel window today and see Power Block and I went, yeah, whoop up, money built that. (laughs) And uh, uh, where was I headed there? Y walks into the saloon and somebody asks goes well what's happening up there what's, we've heard we haven't heard anything what's going on and why's uh, got a fractured accent you know he speaks several languages and english is not one of them and he goes well, are we banaban banaban whooping them up <laughs> and everybody just has the big roar as the foreigner you know, so they just—it suddenly everything, whatever he said gets shortened to whoop up. But of course, there's always that word, there's always around it. Uh, it was a frontier colloquialism, meaning don't let the natives round you up, don't let them get your hair and that sort of a thing. Another favorite I have, it was also a motivation thing for the, uh, if you were driving bulls, say you were coming up out of that big hill at Fort Benton and you needed a little bit more motivation power, and you need those guys to get up the hill, and you're cracking that whoop, and you're yelling at them whoop it up, whoop it up, whoop it whoop So I think somebody got a hold of that, and unfortunately, Canada had one less city named Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what comes out of all of this, and uh, is uh, you know, for, for Fort Benton itself and for Montana, and, and I would dare say for Helena as well, because there's Hauser money involved in this, and there's Conrad money, and all the, the people that we all know of as the bankers building these fancy buildings, well, they're ends up to their ears into this whoop-up trade, because gold has fallen flat, uh, ranching is just catching on, farming, forget it, nobody's doing that, and, uh, and there's no railroads, so, you know, all that they got is this whoop-up whiskey trade you know basically to carve off of and it's not just coming down the steamboats it's also coming up on the union pacific and coming up the trail from Korean, utah to here and on over to Be- to sun river and right on up into our territory you know so people are getting pretty rich off this off of the freighting and you name it i mean the, the whoop up walmart is is pretty good business for montana but uh, there are some people who are not amused and that is the good f- people of M- Lady Queen Victoria officially and her denizens of the Dominion of Canada, in particular one man by the name of Sir John A. Macdonald. I could do a whole nother lecture on Sir John A. Macdonald, I, he's quite the guy, but uh, he was the Prime Minister of Canada at the time, don't hold that against him, but uh, Sir John A. Uh, had a phrase, And he was deathly scared of Americans, and and fiercely, uh, fiercely competitive in keeping what he had cobbled together in the British North America Act and keeping it out of hands of you guys. (laughs) And uh, sorry, and that was my sorry Canadian thing. I have to do that. It's trademark. Now I can cross again, but. Sir John A. didn't like this idea, you know, of these priests and these ministers telling the Hudson's Bay Company telling them all about, you know, U.S. flags flying on this Canadian soil. Well, what are you going to do about it, Sir John? You know, you're going to send out a postal clerk? Well, what he did ended up sending out was the Northwest Mounted Police, which today are the most famous, world famous Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And if I was a true Canadian historian, this would where I would break into the mythology of the RCMP and the Great March West. But uh, I've done that march and quite frankly, RCMP put themselves on a pretty high pedestal sometimes. They're fortunate and they've always been able to write their own history. But at any rate, when the Mount of Police do get there, and you'll, you'll see all kinds of myths, you know, that they close down, whoop up, and all of the, these Americans came scattering across the border, and it's not true, not in, in the least. But what did end up happening was there was a consolidation of the trade as it was. Now, I will say this about the Mount of Police. They put a bit of a control on the illicit liquor trade coming out and going in towards the, uh, the First Nations, but it was a very, very tight control. Um, a very loose control, I should say. And they could never keep it, really. It always just kind of went underground. It's just like the underground drug market today. You know, it was a prohibition from selling liquor to the natives. However, if you wanna meet me over at the coolie next door, I mean, that sort of a thing, it become a back coolie deals as opposed to happening in forts. And in fact, Healy rented a room to the Northwest Mounted Police when they got there. And if you wanna believe Healy's own words, he says, he goes, I went to Colonel McLeod and he goes, I'm a lawman. He goes, I obey the law. If you're gonna have a law here, I will, I will leave the liquor business. Only Healy had already left the liquor business. He had hidden it. <laughs> it wasn't until about two years ago and thanks to Ken Robinson of Fort Benton who uh, wrote the, uh, the journals of, of Healy, or, or published the journals of Healy that I found out that he had basically hid the kegs in a sandbar in the St. Mary's River and at some uh, opportune point he dug them back up and sold them to a competitor. But what you get out of this as the police is coming is the police are like anybody else they have to eat and it's too far to, to uh, back to Winnipeg or to, Fort, or to Edmonton to supply themselves what's the natural place well there's already a good well-beaten path heading down to Helena and heading down to Fort Benton so the police might as well draw their goods from the IG Baker company and the TC power company who previously have been the capitalists up to their ears becoming millionaire well they were becoming hundred (laughs) thousandaires out of the liquor trade. Well, doing government business with the Mounties and with the reserves and with the Canadian Pacific Railroad made them millionaires. So the, the Conrad brothers, you know, they couldn't get to Ottawa and, and learn how to, how, what uh, Sir Johnny McDonald's brand of Scotch was fast enough. And so that's sort of uh, where Healy and the whoop up and the pioneering trade is really owed as far as the history of Northern Montana and the commerce and what opened uh, Southern Alberta as well. And in a sense, those ties remained until Canadian railroads started to get their act together and started to tie the country together. And then things kind of went more east, west and less north and south. And in some ways I'm saddened by that. And in some ways I I like to come down here and try to, to bring back those halcyon days and bring back the ideas of the north, south. And oh my gosh I got five minutes to go the rest of his life. (laughs) So, uh, what I will say is Healy is eventually squeezed out of the Buffalo fur market and uh, he looks around the Montana frontier, we've got railroads, we've got ranches, we've got uh, power companies in Great Falls and he goes, gosh this place is boring. I wonder where there's something else happening. And he finds himself in Juneau, Alaska. And he uh, finds himself a little in, uh, Tlingit Indian village called Dye, which is just across the Lynn Canal from where Skagway, Alaska is today. And he opens him some, himself up a trading post uh, trading amongst the Tlingit. And this is his fourth thought again because he takes a look and in amongst his little remote fishing village takes a look up the mountain and it's called the Chilkoot Pass. And every now and then some guy comes in on a boat and he wanders up that pass for God knows where and every now and then he comes back and goes, well, I found a little of this stuff. Are you interested? One of them was George Carmack. And Healy decides after 10 years at Daye, in which he was very, very successful, and in fact, he told uh, Alf Hamilton in a letter, I found another Fort Whoop up up here. And I think at Daye, he uh, is not only, you know, more successful, but he is also, makes less of the mistakes amongst the native villages that he might have made amongst the Blackfoot and other First Nations down in the south. Uh, but what he does see, literally, he sees a gold mine up there. And he knows that up on the Yukon River, somebody's going to hit something big someday. And he go, comes back to Helena. He has a meeting in the Montana Club with TC Power, and I relate that in there. And he tries to get all the young buck capitalists and all of the, the Gilded Age people interested in an expedition and into building a company. Well, T.C. Power says thank you, but no thank you. I think the last time you and I talked, we were in court. But at any rate, he does introduce him to an old hide dealer that has gotten very, very successful in the meat business in Chicago. And that man introduces him to a more successful uh, meat packers by the name of the Cudahy family. You probably heard that name. The Cudahys are, well, they're they're the, the Burns... Anyway, they're huge, <laughs> they're big, they're like armor, armor hot dogs and they eventually form a company and they build a fleet of five steamboats, one of course is named the SS John J. Healy and something to the order of 12 trading posts along the, uh, the Yukon River in the, uh, the days of the Klondike Gold Rush. So when uh, the Klondike Gold Rush hits, Healy is already there, he's established. When Carmack uh, hits it on the Canadian side in Dawson City, Yukon, Johnny's there. And an interesting story up there, while he's up there at a little place that's just inside the Yukon-Alaska border, a place called Forty Mile, uh, Johnny gets into a little bit of trouble with the local miners. And I'll relate that, the causes are all inside the book. See, I'm drawing you into having to buy that book now. But in the cause, uh, he, he finds himself... At the uh, mercy of a vigilante committee, sound sound familiar? And they pronounce judgment against him—not to hang him at, at all, but you know, they're, they're, it's Canada, so they're more civilized uh, vigilantes, you know, <laughs> yeah, better class of riffraff. And uh, but they do fine him, and uh, so he says, "Well, I'm writing a letter. Am I going to write a letter to my congressman? No, I'm in Canada." He wrote a letter to the Northwest Mounted Police and an old Mountie that he had met by the name of Sam Steele. And Sam Steele just shot it up through the bureaucracy and next thing you know, for the second time in his life, Johnny Healy has inspired the Mounted Police to to police their own territory. (laughs) So that's sort of John, you know, the the Mounties like to make Healy out as be as their snidely whiplash, but in some cases, I think they should probably be a little fairer to him. Um, To wrap this up, Healy loses control of his own company that he builds and there's all kinds of corporate skullduggery and a a very interesting divorce trial that, that causes all of this but he gets another idea. He does Sarah Palin one better. I'm not gonna, I can't see Russia from my house but I think I can drive a train there. And he gets the idea that he's going to build the Bering Strait Tunnel. And uh, so he does form a company. And uh, he, he would have needed $200 million at that time in 1906 money uh, to, just to dig the tunnel. But he did interest a lot of railroaders. JJ uh, Hill kind of looked at it, sniffed a little bit, backed off. Um, Uh, the Union Pacifica, Harriman. Harriman went so far as to mount his own expedition, his own scientific expedition up into the Skagway country, came back, published the results, and then didn't do anything more. Um, But he also uh, interested Russians, the Russian, not Russian money, the Russian Czar Nicholas II. Through working through an intermediary, a French count by the name of de Lobel, several uh, trips were made and overtures made to the Tsar's inner council to get land concessions and it's the same sort of land concessions that the UP got and the Canadian Pacific got you know so many acres per mile of track built so if we build track in your country will you give us this allotment of money and Johnny intended to exploit this in mining because he figured well you know Alaska is full of uh, silver and gold and and everything else, maybe Siberia is too. He intended to exploit this in the, in the, in the, the warmer parts of the Siberian in, uh, in selling the land, and selling the land to God knows who. And, you know, I'm not gonna sell it to the peasants, but you might sell it to European interests, you might sell it to you know, homesteaders you know, who are still looking for more land. And he intended to finance this whole tunnel by leveraging these land grants. Well, that's all very good, you know, like a guy's looking like a, you know, the, mod, the Thomas Edison or the Wright brothers of his day, you know, like he's going to connect the world. And Teddy Roosevelt is saying, boy, I'm, you know, I'm going to get on the first train uh, out of New York and I'm going to get off in Paris. And goes, "And I'm going to be the first customer. You know, so he's interested in some, some very, uh, some high profile people. Except if you ever want to make God laugh, just tell him your plans. Well, God must have been reading the Trans-Alaska-Siberian Prospectus, because the next thing that happened was the Tsar got himself into a war with Japan, and wouldn't you know it, Japan licked them, and licked them but good. To the point that Russia was put into a very severe economic depression in 1905, it was the first of many rebellions broke out that was brutally put down and of course the rebellions that would eventually end up in the big one in 1917. So you can just imagine, had Johnny Healy been successful, you know the world might never have known a communism. (laughs) So at any rate, uh, of course this bankrupts Johnny and he comes back and he has to to live in uh, San Francisco at the behest of one of his uh, daughters, but not before making one last survey out of Dawson City. And he's aiming to run a line towards Fairbanks because he thinks he's gonna run a railroad through there. And he almost died on that trip, um, doing a survey through the winter, through the White River Country. And uh, I like to think it was, was Johnny's last hurrah, as opposed to uh, dying with his boots off in a San Francisco hospital bed. And died penniless and eventually uh, his remains were taken to Seattle where he was buried beside his uh, first wife Mary Frances Healy of Sun River and uh, a son and a grandson that had died of tuberculosis up in Alaska. Um, So I think that's about where I wanted to leave it. I thought of another point but it's gone so I think I'll just leave it gone. Other than that, uh, thank you very much. Oh, I know what the point was and uh, it's such an obvious one and I don't know why it is. Healy's West was born in this building and it was born in this building upstairs in the archives in the notes and in the very fertile mind of a lady by the name of Virginia Burlingame. In two, 1999, myself and the director at the time of uh, Fort Whoopup, uh, my late Richard Shockley, came here and we spent uh, two weeks at, at different points over 1999 and 2000. Richard was interested in um, in Whoopup trade connections. I was interested in the biography of Ely. I had heard of Mrs. Game before, and but what I didn't know was when she was here, her notes, or when I was here, her notes within the last two weeks had just come off of a five-year restriction after their death. I think someone was pointing to me and telling me to do this. And in the photographic archives here, in this building, is a treasure trove of what Virginia uh, collected. Uh, Virginia was looking at a biography, but she was actually looking at it at a different time. She was looking to make Johnny Healy into Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. Because Healy had, Healy's granddaughter was married to a Hollywood agent by the name of Scoop Conlon, who just happened to have break bread with a man named Walt Disney. And right about then, this is the time when Davy Crockett was coming out, Swamp Fox, and all of those frontier films that Disney was making. And there are letters up here in the archives Of scoop trying to interest Disney into this Johnny Healy and but uh, apparently Disney was interested in a different kind of frontier land than this guy. Now I think what I'll close I just wanted to to relate that to you I'm sure there's people here that knew Mrs. Burlingame well but uh, she pointed me the way to me without her knowing it and there was another man who pointed the way was a man who did know Johnny Uh, He was a journalist who had met him during the Klondike and had also tried to write his biography while the man was still alive. And his notes were deposited in Dartmouth, New Hampshire. And I sent an email to Dartmouth one day and the next thing you know, postage free, a box this big landed on my doorstep in Coaldale, Alberta. And it was basically all of the writings of Healy and the unpublished biography that Adney had never quite gotten done. And I want to close with something that was taken out of that, so thank you Mrs. Burlingame, thank you Tappan Adney. Healy was a man of the West and the West of the, not the West of the movies, of the Western story pulps. Healy's West was the West of the free trappers, army post and hostile Indians and the buffalo that roamed the plains in countless numbers supplying abundant food for the untamed Sioux and Blackfoot. When the buffalo petered out from ruthless slaughter by white men, then, only then, could the Indians be herded onto reservations, and into a reasonable extent kept there by government issue of food and blankets. Haley's West was that of the gold miners, too. The overflow from the Placers of California, it was the west of overland trails, covered wagon trains from the east of this real pioneer period and the men who took their part in opening up the country. But little has been recorded, for the writers had not yet arrived on the scene. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Healy's West and we just live in it. Thank you.